You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Jacob Morgan is a four-time best-selling author, TED and keynote speaker, futurist, and the creator of futureofworkuniversity.com, an online education and training platform that helps future-proof individuals and organizations by teaching them the skills they need to succeed in the future of work. Jacob also hosts the Future of Work podcast, a weekly show where he speaks with senior executives, business leaders, and best-selling authors about how the world of work is changing. He believes in creating organizations where we all want to show up for work, not where we just need to show up for work. In today's episode, Jacob and Ron discuss key skills and mindsets that the leaders of tomorrow need and how to develop them, how our perceptions define our reality, as well as how we see the leadership within our team, what coaching is and why not all leaders are great coaches, and what is a futurist and how do I become one? Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today I'm very lucky to have on our show, Jacob Morgan. Jacob, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, how, how's, uh, how are things with you? Pretty good. You know, I suppose as, as good as they could be having uh, two kids at home in, in COVID times and dealing with all the madness that everybody else is dealing with. But considering the circumstances, hey, we're hanging in there. We're doing okay. Well, you're someone who found something to do with your time because you obviously wrote a book during a pandemic. Yep. Well, the book came out right when the pandemic became a uh, pandemic, but I actually wrote it uh, before you know, all that, all that sort of stuff happened, but it came out. Yeah. I think it came out March of last year. So I think March is actually when COVID-19 was actually classified as a pandemic. So the same, same month for the book and the, and the pandemic. Well, in Canada, I think it was February. So we were a month ahead of the U S no joke. I don't know when we were official. (laughs) Well, well, look, I want to rewind a little bit because obviously culture is extremely important to you. Your new book has a focus on leadership, but what was, Jacob, what was your aha moment? When was when did this become important to you? Because at some point it probably wasn't on your radar and wasn't important and then became important. And take us through that. Well, it became important uh, probably over 15 years ago when I had my last terrible job working for somebody else. And so, the, you know, the story I always tell people is that when I was in school, uh, in, in specifically in college, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz. Prior to that, I was always a really bad student. I had C's, D's, and I wasn't doing well. But in college, I really decided to buckle down and, and study hard. And while my friends were out partying, I would be in the weekends in the library, double majoring. And I finally graduated with honors with a dual degree in economics and psychology. And I was very, very excited to join the corporate world. I thought, this is it. This is my moment. You know, I worked hard. I'm going to be able to get a great job. So my first job out of college is for a technology company in Southern California. And I remember when I interviewed there, during the interview process, they, they painted this wonderful picture, this wonderful story for me about what it would be like to work there, traveling the country, meeting with entrepreneurs, doing all this really, really great stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, well, you know, it makes sense. This is why I worked so hard in college. I really want this opportunity. So I took the job and I had a three hour daily commute. So I was living with my parents in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles and I was commuting to downtown Los Angeles every day. So bumper to bumper traffic, for an hour and a half to work and an hour and a half back from work. And a few months into my job, 
I realized that this story that they told me was a complete lie. Uh, and instead, I, what I was doing is just data entry and cold calling and PowerPoint presentations. Really did not need a college degree. I didn't need any skills for this job. And the big moment was when um, one of the top executives at the company comes out of his beautiful corner office in downtown Los Angeles. And he says, Jacob, I have a really, really important project for you. I need your help with something. And I, you know, I got very excited. I thought I paid my dues. This is the moment. It's all going to happen now. So I run over to the CEO or to this top executive and I say, yeah, what is it? Well, what can I help you with? And he takes out his wallet and he gives me a $10 bill and says, I'm late for a meeting and I need you to go down to Starbucks and get me a cup of coffee. And by the way, you can get yourself a latte as well. Well, that was nice. That it was very, very nice of him. Yes. A cookie would have been nice too, but that's fine. Latte's fine. Exactly. And and at that moment, like if there would have been a camera on me, you could just see like the blood drain from my face. And I just, at that point, just became completely disengaged and disenfranchised with anything corporate America related. Uh, So that was one of my last full-time jobs working for anybody else ever. The second aha moment came when I moved to the Bay Area. I moved to San Francisco and I was working at a marketing agency and I won a pass to go to a conference. And at the time, the conference was a Web 2.0 Expo, which I think has since disappeared. And I was working at a marketing agency and this was a marketing conference. The tickets to the conference were around $2,500. I got a free pass. I ran some contest. I won the contest. So I went to the executives at the company and I said, look, I, we're a marketing agency. This is a marketing conference. It's a great opportunity. I don't have any specific client deliverables or deadlines. Can I go to this conference? And they said, nope. And I said, okay, is is there something I can do to go? Is there a reason why I can't go? And they just said, no, sorry, you can't go. So I quit my job and I went to that conference anyway. And that was the last full-time job I had working for anybody else. And funny enough, a couple months ago, um, I actually saw from the first story, my coffee story, I saw that executive in an airport in Oakland. As I was flying uh, from Oakland to Los Angeles, because I was recording the audio version of my book. And he, he comes over to me and he says, Jacob. I said, yes. He says, you know, I, I heard that story that you keep telling. And he said, I, I heard it on uh, some of your podcasts or I saw some videos about it. And so that was a, a rather awkward encounter and an experience. But, you know, he's still doing the same thing that he was doing. He's a whoa, whoa, manager. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did you say? You can't do that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I kind of played it off and was like, oh, you know, there's so many stories that I tell. I, you know, which one are you talking? So I, I kind of just made it look like I didn't really know what he was. He was there with his kid and they were, they were the whole baseball uh, team. I didn't want to get into the whole. So I just kind of said, you know, there's lots of stories that I, and it was funny because after we finished talking briefly, I could tell that, um, you know, he went back to, to his friends and he's like, yeah, you like, see that guy over there? Like he used to work for me. So I could tell that he was having that kind of, I could hear them whispering about me. So it was a little bit of an awkward, uh, you know, sitting, um, waiting for the plane to take off. But, but there's, there, there's a silver lining there, right? Like we kind of, I feel like I already owe him a thank you because of the work that you do, right? Yeah, I always joke and I, I say I, I should be thankful for that cup of coffee and for that executive. And, and it's not to say that he was mean to me and he berated me and he like, you know, wasn't insulting. He, it, none of that was there. It was just the fact that, you know, it was this act of getting this cup of coffee, this mentality, this traditional way of working, of climbing the ladder, paying your dues, doing grunt work, not understanding 
the skills or the contributions that somebody can bring to an organization. And it was that aspect of it that really killed me. Not the fact that he was bad in terms, because there are a lot of leaders out there who have done terrible, terrible things, you know, taking credit for people's work, yelling at them in front of their coworkers and peers, putting them down on conference calls. I didn't have that experience. Mine was more of a work should not be like this kind of an experience. And of course, there are a lot of great leaders out there too. I just never worked for any of them. Right. And so, so yeah, I think you touched on this a little bit. What was the key lesson from those two things? What were some of the key lessons to say, wow, never again? Well, the big moment for me or the big lesson for me was, is, is this really how work needs to get done? Is this really what work is about? And it, it was interesting because growing up, so I come from uh, an immigrant family. My family came from the Republic of Georgia, former USSR. And when my family came to the States, I remember growing up, one of the first jobs my mom had when I was um, probably a teenager or so, um, so teenager and right before being a teenager, she, she was working for a computer, uh, for an insurance company as a computer programmer. And I would vividly remember many, many times she would come home from work in tears. She would just, she'd be crying. And you know, they would say, you know, Jacob, you know, go to your room. And my, I would hear my dad talking to her and she would just say that her managers are so mean to her. She's under so much stress. She hates her job. Uh, and this happened for such a long time that finally my dad said, you, you should quit your job because no amount of money is worth this much stress and unhappiness. And my mom actually went back to school, got a master's degree. Now she's a, a marriage and family therapist in LA. But I remember growing up thinking like, is that what I have to look forward to? Like, you know, this, this kind of a job? Today, still, you know, just prior COVID, my dad commutes. He, he wakes up at uh, five every morning, commutes an hour and a half to drive from where we live to El Segundo, hour and a half back. And so I, I kind of grew up with like, this is how work needs to get done. And when I finally experienced that, I thought, okay, this, there's something very, very wrong here. Uh, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And so I realized I mm. just want to go off and do my own thing and figure out how do we create organizations where other people don't experience that. And so the first book, the first was collaborative organization, right? Yep. But it doesn't seem like those experiences tie back to the book or, or do they? Not so much. So I had an interesting evolution of, of how I got to where I am. Uh, when I first went off on my own to pursue this entrepreneurial uh, endeavor of mine, I actually started off doing or learning about affiliate marketing and search engine optimization. So while I still had this full-time job where this uh, executive made me get him coffee, I would have a lot of downtime because as you can imagine in between cold calling, you just, you know, there's not a lot going on. You finish your calls and I have hours every day. And I would just Google random stuff like how to make money on your own, how to be an entrepreneur. And I started learning about things like affiliate marketing. And keep in mind back then there was no, you know, social media wasn't what it was now. Like none of this stuff was there. And so I learned about things like affiliate marketing and search engine optimization. And so I did that for a little while, learn how to build my own website, learn how to sell things with affiliate links and try to generate revenue from that. And ultimately the job that I took in San Francisco was doing search engine optimization. I interviewed there, they said, what kind of experience do you have? I told them I've been doing this for a few years on my own, gave them examples. And I had this job uh, that I took. At that time, social media was starting to gain more traction. And I was trying to get a lot of the organizations who were clients of this marketing agency. I was pitching this to my executives. You know, we should get them involved with social media. We should get them. And everyone's like, ah, no, 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 no. That's kind of crazy. Just, just stay in your lane and you know, don't cause problems. Just 
shut up. And so after I left that job, I got involved in social media consulting uh, and, and trying to help organizations get involved in social media. And then after that, social media inside of organizations started to become popular. So things like Salesforce Chatter, Yammer, Jive, Lithium Technologies, if anybody remembers those vendors. So how do we use these technologies to connect our people together? And that's when the collaborative organization came out. That's what that book was about. How do you use these tools to connect your people and information? Mm. And then that slowly evolved into this concept of the future of work, into employee experience, uh, into leadership. And that's uh, kind of how that evolution happened. Yes, that's super cool. It really was like one step led to the next, led to the next. And so, you know. Yeah, but and go ahead. The interesting thing, and you probably remember this too, there were a lot of, um, you know, when social media was big, yeah, yeah, 2008, 2009, 2010, there were a lot of uh, people who were big names in the social media space, social media pundits, uh, people, social media consultants, they would speak at all these big social media conferences. And a lot of those people have since vanished because they did not pivot. They stayed in that social media bubble and they thought we're just gonna ride this out forever and we're just gonna do social media consulting forever. And then after a couple of years, everybody understood social media and there was no need for these types of consultants anymore. And so what I think I did a pretty good job of during my career is pivoting. Now, had I still stayed in social media, I would have vanished off the face of the earth. Like you don't hear, social media pundits anymore and social media consultants is just kind of normal. Now it's just social media stars. Exactly, exactly. But you don't see these people speaking at conferences anymore. You don't even see social media conferences really anymore. And so I have had to consistently kind of watch and pivot with how things are changing uh, in the world. And I think a lot of these other people didn't do that. Interesting. So I, I want to spend some time talking about the future leader. Give, give us an overall broad strokes of the book, and then I want to dive into some of the uh, some of the mindset and, and skill pieces uh, to the book. Sure. So the the context and where this came about is um, I would speak at a lot of conferences and events before COVID, obviously, and I would constantly get questions from the uh, from the attendees from executives that i would be speaking with and they would say look you know this is great stuff we understand what's going on in the world now like we're living in it we like we get it we want to understand what's coming like where how are things changing in the future and what should we we'd be doing now to prepare for the future specifically around leadership what should we be teaching our leaders uh, what should they know how to do how should they be thinking what are the challenges what are the trends that are shaping leadership and i thought you know these are really good questions i had my ideas uh, but I didn't have any hard data to back it up. And then I started doing some research online and realized that there's not a lot of data out there in general to back this stuff up. And specifically, nothing from the actual leaders of organizations who are sharing their insights on this. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting idea for a book. To look at the future leader and interview 140 of the world's top CEOs and then match or um, compare the responses from these CEO interviews with a survey of nearly 14,000 employees. And I did that in partnership with LinkedIn. And so the book basically looks at uh, what are the greatest challenges for leaders? How, what are the, um, the trends that are shaping leadership? And the most important part of the book explores the most essential skills and mindsets that we need to be focusing on if we want to be effective leaders in this new world of work that we're all a part of. So that's really what the book is about. What, what do you need to know uh, what are the skills, what are the mindsets you need to master so that you can lead and thrive in this new world of work? And originally, the book had a future focused, right? Obviously, it's called The Future Leader. 
So the questions that I would ask all these CEOs would always be around, in the next 10 years, what are the most crucial skills? In the next 10 years, what are the big mindsets? And then COVID happened. And one of the big questions I always get from people is, as a result of COVID and Black Lives Matter and you know, basically 2020, how does that impact the findings or the research? And the big uh, sort of insight from that is that the future leader is now the present leader. The, the skills and mindsets I talk about in the book are not just for the future leader. These are things that we need to be doing now. And so that has been a very, very interesting um, shift. Uh, 2020 has basically shrunk the time horizon for the future leader to make it the present leader. So, so let's talk about some of these mindsets, right? You have global citizen, servant, mm-hmm. chef, explorer. Just give us a quick overview of some of these and we'll, we'll dive in, into some. Sure. Which one do you want to start with? So uh, chef, because I think when you look at that, you don't, you're not quite sure what that means. Yes. And I try to give them all these uh, kind of fun, quirky names just to make it easier for people to kind of remember them. So the chef is really about balancing ingredients and the two ingredients that you as a leader need to balance inside your company are humanity and technology. So the mindset of the chef and what I talk about in the book is how do you make sure that you are balancing, uh, focusing on the people inside of your organization with doing good with the humanity aspect of work with this need to constantly invest in technology to be faster, uh, to be able to scale, to be more efficient, to be as, as productive as you need to be. So that's the mindset of the chef, thinking in terms of balancing those two ingredients so that you get it just right. Because if you skew towards one or the other, either you won't be able to attract and retain top talent, or you won't be able to scale and grow and be productive as efficient as you want. So having that balance is important. Just like when a chef is making some sort of a dish, they have to balance a lot of ingredients to make sure that it tastes good, looks good, is healthy. And so leaders, two ingredients, they need to balance humanity, technology. Do you think there's the other side of that? You know, so I used to own an Italian restaurant called B, uh, Milano's. It was a, a Nova Scotia's first bring on bottle of wine restaurant. I always tell this story um, about, you know, customers would literally come to me, Jacob, in the night and they'd say, Ron, I need to tell you that the chicken Parmesan is so good here that if you take it off the menu, I'm never going to come back. And no word of a lie, within the same night, someone would come to me, same night, three tables down and say, the chicken parmesan's so bad. You got to take it off the menu. Like so bad. Like, what are you doing? I guess my point on this is, does that check and balance? Like how as leaders do we know, you know, because everybody's different. The, the employer, like a customer, yeah. some want to like, you know, and, and I always go back to a, a great advisor of mine, Holly Delaney. She talked about this when we talked about, you know, coaching and having a cadence of coaching. And she said, you know, at Zappos, she's recently left, but at Zappos, we ask someone how they want it set up. Some want to be coached weekly. Some want to know that they just have access when they need it. How do you How does the chef balance the other side of that? Yeah, that's a very fair point and a great question. And part of that is you as a leader need to know and understand your people. One of the big challenges in leadership that we always have is we always take the cookie cutter approach. We assume that we can apply the one method, the one approach, the one tactic for everybody and everybody's going to respond to it the same way. We see this all the time in organizations, right? You want to celebrate something? Let's all go to the bar for a big happy hour. Well, you might have some employees who are introverts who don't want to be recognized or celebrated at a bar where everybody's drunk and shouting, whereas other employees are more extroverted and they do. So you really need to understand your people, what they care about, what they value. Um, Understand your employees as human beings, not just as workers. 
And when you do that, when you understand what they care about, where they're coming from, what, what they value, then you can start to offer that kind of tailored, personalized coaching or mentoring or whatever it is that they need. But not everybody's going to respond the same way. Just like a coach on a sports team. If you're coaching a, a soccer team or a basketball team, you can't coach everybody the same way. Not everybody is going to be Le a LeBron James who's you know an all-star and can do anything. Not everyone's going to be a Federer or a Serena Williams. You just, it just doesn't happen. So you need to understand the strengths, the weaknesses of all the players that you have, of all the people that you have, uh, and then build those things accordingly. One of my favorite examples of this is John Wooden. And he was the coach of UCLA men's basketball team. And they won all sorts of championships. And one of the things that he did a really good job of is twofold. One, he understood that to be a great ball player, you have to first be a great human being. So he understood uh, the ins and outs of all of the people that, that were a part of the team, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, what they were struggling with. Like he knew them intimately. The second thing he did a really good job of is he knew that not everybody is going to be an all-star. And you might have some players on the team who can only make a basket from one part of the court. But if you get them on that one part of the court, they're going to nail that basket every time. So he would design plays so that that ball player would get that ball on that part of the court so that they can make the basket during the game. And he would make sure that everybody else revolved around the strengths of that person. And I think leaders need to very much be the same way. You have to understand the strengths and the weaknesses of all your players and make sure that everybody can play to each other's strengths and supplement uh, and help out with the weaknesses. And so does the strength and weakness portion, Jacob, does that still live under chef or, or not? It's just balance of, of technology and, and, and the other side. Well, it's more of a skill. So I put that typically under either Yoda for emotional, uh, emotional intelligence, or it's also under the aspect of the coach. Okay. Uh, but it really comes down to self-awareness. And self-awareness mm -hmm. is very much, that's why it falls so much under the skill of Yoda. Because Yoda is about self-awareness and empathy. And self-awareness is not only understanding your strengths and your weaknesses and those of the people around you, but also as a leader, how people perceive you and how they understand your strengths and your weaknesses. Because oftentimes what happens is we think that we are really good at something, but the reality is that people around us perceive us as not being good at that. So as a leader, you might be listening or watching with this thinking, you know what, I'm a great communicator. I'm a great collaborator. I'm a great deal maker. But if I were to go to the people that you work with and I would say, hey, is, uh, is John a great communicator? And if they would say no, then there's a clear lack of self-awareness because perception is reality. And leaders forget that leadership is not so much about them. Leadership is about how other people perceive you. It's not so much looking into a mirror. It's looking more through a window. Right. I, so I want to make sure we can cover everything off, but I, and I don't want to make any assumptions. I'm assuming that servant is the servant leadership. Am I wrong on that? No. So it, it's, well, servant leadership is a part of that, but there's a big piece that people always forget. So the servant mindset is about understanding there are four groups that you serve. You serve your team, you serve your customers, you serve your leaders if you have them, but people always forget the most, perhaps one of the most important one is serving yourself. And serving yourself is not the same thing as being selfish. It's not being selfish, it's practicing self-care meaning taking care of yourself emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, whatever you got to do as a leader so that when you show up to work each day, you can take care of those around you. And it's also about having a little bit of humility and vulnerability. Got it. That makes total sense. And I think that's a good reminder and a huge blind spot for leaders, right? Is the self-care. Oh yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. Couldn't agree I looked, more. At, I looked at explore. And to me, I just, I feel it's, it's curiosity, be a springboard, find out more about people and be curious, but, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Yeah. Curiosity is certainly a part of that. Um, so is agility, having a growth mindset. That is another big component of that. Another big component of the explore mindset is being a perpetual learner. So understanding that you can't rely on anybody else or on organizations or on educational institutions to teach you everything you need to know to be successful personally and professionally. You have to take that accountability into your own hands. And one of my favorite examples of that actually comes from my dad. And uh, I mentioned that I come from a family of immigrants. And long story short, when my dad ended up in the United States, um, he, the first place he ended up living was New Jersey. He didn't speak any English, like not a word. And he had a choice and he could have lived in, in these affordable housing areas with other Russian immigrants so that everybody would speak the same language, or he could choose to live somewhere else. And he chose to live around people uh, where nobody spoke Russian. And he lived where everybody spoke English. And I asked him, I said, why would you do that? Why would you make things so hard on yourself? And he said, because I need to get out of my comfort zone. And if I want to learn English, why would I surround myself with a bunch of Russians? Um, he also learned how to uh, speak English by watching the Johnny Carson and Merv Griffin shows with the English-Russian translation dictionary. And so my dad is, a, I, I think, a really good example, and th there's lots of other stuff in there, of being a perpetual learner, learning how to learn, uh, tackling new challenges as they come your way, and understanding that you are ultimately, ultimately responsible for your personal and professional development, uh, not anybody else. I love that. And, and last, global citizen. Uh, I, it, I read that and it, and it looks like just be a well-rounded good person and care about everybody. Yep, very much so. Um, so two, two components to that, thinking big picture, meaning don't just pay attention to what's right in front of you, look at the big picture. And the second part of this is surround yourself by people who are not like you different cultures, backgrounds, uh, experiences, all that sort of stuff. Which is huge, you know, now, of, of course, you know, diversity inclusion is huge. And so it sounds like, you know, these future, these leaders were talking about this as knowing that that was going to be important, even pre-pandemic, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, and this is a tough thing for leaders, right? Because most leaders are typically surrounding themselves with yes men, uh, yes men and yes women, people who are just going to tell them how great they are, how wonderful their decisions are, people who are not going to challenge you in any way. And as a leader, if those are the types of people you surround yourself with, you start to live literally in some bubble where it's, it's not real anymore. And so you have to surround yourself by people who are not like you and people who are going to challenge your opinions, your ideas, uh, and your, your perceptions of work in general. It's funny, my, my past life, so it was private security. I owned a company uh, based out of Halifax, grew it across the country with over 3,000 employees. And I did a lot of executive protection and, and worked, you know, with, folks from Donald Trump to Ringo Starr and, and really saw that in action. I would see where, you know, someone might become an a-hole. And I would, I would, at first I was like, wow, what, a, what an asshole this person is. And then, and then I would kind of logically think it through and be like, wow, but they've been treated like a king or a queen for 30 years. Everyone's always just giving them what they want. They're, they're, they're actually product of their environment. And, and I think there's, to your point, yep. there's two sides to that. We become people we didn't want to maybe become because of all this. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll just tell you what you want to hear. It, this is, doesn't help the leader either. Nope. Nope. It, it creates a really big head, uh, a lot of ego, a little bit of, uh, of even narcissism at some point. Uh, absolutely. So let's flip to skills. 
Um, we've talked a little bit about this, but I, I, you know, coach at the top. And so, you know, my first book, Outrageous Empowerment, uh, that came out in 2017 was really just a story. But the second book we've got called Scaling Culture, which is coming out in the spring, has uh, has a uh, chapter on coaching. And this was an aha moment for me because as I was writing the chapter, I have this real realization that I always thought I was a good coach until I really figured out through a book called Master Coach um, through Greg Thomas uh, Thompson out, out of the U.S., that, I, that, 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 that really let me know what coaching was. And, and, and I had this realization that, you know, coaching isn't training. And sometimes I think we mix that up. Oh, Jacob, I need to retrain you. That, that yeah. is not coaching. Um, I certainly was more of an advisor, um, counsel motivator. I wasn't, was not a good coach. And I don't, don't know if I am today either. What is your version of coach and how do we get that skill? For me, a coach is somebody who helps you do things that you didn't know that you could do. Somebody who helps unlock your potential. Bam. Uh, if you ever watch any kind of sporting event, whether it's a team-based event or an individual event like tennis, whenever the team or the person wins, what do they always say? Couldn't have done it without my coach. Well, I think the coach. Uh, because a coach helps you do things. They, they help you become a better version of yourself that you didn't even know that you could become. And more importantly, a, a coach helps you become even more successful than they are. Uh, if you look at a lot of the coaches out there, the coaches are never as successful as the uh, as the athletes. The coach helped other people become more successful than they are. So for me, when I think of a great leader, I think of a coach, somebody who um, is trying to replace himself or herself with somebody else. Because it's not hard to make somebody else more successful. You could spend five, 10 minutes with somebody, they learn a little bit more, and maybe now they're a little bit more successful. That's easy. But to help make somebody become more successful than you, to train somebody to take over your job, to take your position, that's a really, really hard thing to grasp. And a lot of leaders, quite honestly, are just not comfortable doing that. Um, we get upset when somebody gets promoted over us. Uh, so many stories, right? You know, you're, you're coaching, you're mentoring somebody, and that person grows ahead of you. They now become your boss, and you're sitting there thinking like, what the hell? That should have been me. When in reality, the leader should be saying, I'm so proud that you had become more successful than even I was able to become. So that to me is ultimately what a great coach does. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And, you know, as as I came to to that definition, and I think you said it magically. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Um, one of the skills that that is challenging for me, and I wonder if you talk about this, um, is first how to develop the skills. Because, you know, I'm a fast-moving um passionate entrepreneur. And so I lack patience some sometimes. And I find to be a good coach, you really need to be patient. You know, you, you, you can't jump to a solution because you're doing exactly what you said. I'm just focused 100% on you. And so how do you, how, you know, and this is, will be helpful for me. How do we skill up there? How do, is that, am I getting it right? Is that in part of what you believe are the skills to be a good coach. What are those skills and how do we develop that? Is it, is it trained? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, the reality is that not all leaders are good coaches. Uh, you know, they're simply not. Um, I think there are different facets and aspects of leadership and certain leaders are good at certain aspects of those and certain leaders are not. And that's why it's so important to think of leadership as kind of a team sport instead of just as something that one person does. And uh, I interviewed 
interviewed, I think it was yesterday or day before yesterday, uh, Manfred Ketz de Free. And he's, uh, he's based out of, um, uh, he's Dutch. Where is he based? The, the Netherlands or he's in Paris now. And he wrote this article, I think it was over a decade now, called The Eight Archetypes of Leadership. And he talks about the different types of leaders. You have some leaders who think like an entrepreneur, other leaders who are deal makers, other leaders who are really good at the process, uh, other leaders who are innovators. And so I think it is an unrealistic expectation to assume that every leader is going to be great at everything that they do. But again, that's why it's so important to have a team. And that's why it's so important to make sure that certain leaders you know, they're, they're in the right positions where they can excel and they can succeed. So for example, if you're a leader who's really good at process, you're really good at making sure that things are operating all the time, but maybe you're not good at some of those other aspects, then you shouldn't be put into positions where you are focusing on those other aspects and not on what your strengths are. So that I think is an important thing that a lot of leaders need to remember, but you can also develop and grow and focus on the weaknesses that you have. You know, patience is, of course, a tough one. When you're coaching others, I have a four-year-old, I have a nine-month-old. I'm not the most patient person in the world. I'm trying to teach my uh, uh, my four-year-old how to play chess. And honestly, sometimes I just want to smack my head into the wall because it's just not clicking sometimes. Like, this is how you checkmate. This is how the bishop moves. Like, let's, come on. Um, Jacob, and seriously, if you, I have a four-year-old, uh, Georgia, who I call little G if, and I would love to do that. I gave up. So see, you're more patient than me already. If you figure that out, can you, can you send me the video, some notes that would be wonderful. Sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, these are all definitely things that, that we need to work on. I, I definitely think leadership is something that people can learn. I think everybody can become a better leader, but it does takes practice. It takes patience. It takes effort. Just like if you want to become a better soccer player, you want to become a better chess player, you know, patience is something that is a part of the game. And if you want to become good at anything, it's going to require patience. Believe me, I'm, uh, you know, I've been taking chess lessons for several years now from a grandmaster and I, you know, I'm constantly trying to get better. And it is the most frustrating thing in the world when you play uh, chess with other people and you miss these very basic things and you just think like, I'm an idiot, like I'm never going to get good at this. But the reality is that you have to be patient and you have to go back and, and keep studying and keep learning and keep trying. And that's just kind of the nature of the game. You know, it's interesting when I, when I think back and, and we talk about like, how do you scale coaching in an organization and knowing what I know today, and this is really real time for us. So in my past business, not, not knowing what coaching was, but I really wanted everyone to be a coach. And I, and I think that even coaching breaks down a little bit because, you know, um, to be a, a, a true like master coach, you're probably not going to have that skill internally. The leader probably may not be that person because to your point, you can't do everything well. I do, I, I'm a better relationship builder than I am a coach for sure, hands down. Not that I can't coach, but it's not my, my, my absolute strength. And so as I'm scaling um, new businesses now, what we decided to do was actually hire an outside coach and put them on retainer and have access to all of our staff that they can opt in for coaching. What do you think? Am I, am I, are we taking the easy right route out or would that align with your thoughts on how do you, how do you build that within the organization? Oh, absolutely. I, I think this idea that everybody, I, I think it's okay to build that culture of everybody can be a coach and we want to encourage everybody to coach others, to provide help and guidance or feedback whenever it's available. But coach is a very specific thing, right? I mean, coach, yeah, coaching somebody takes time, uh, effort, dedication, uh, persistence, patience. It's honestly, All not up. everybody is a good, 
Yeah, not everybody is a good coach, a great communicator, a great listener. Um, so the reality is that not everybody's going to be a great coach. I think there are some people who are bad coaches, some people who can be okay coaches, and some people who are just amazing coaches. So if you're not good at something, I don't think that you should be focusing on those things. I mean, it's just like building a business, right? Uh, when I first started uh, becoming an entrepreneur and building my business, I wanted to do everything myself, create invoices, do emails, uh, every, everything, right? The invoicing. And even as the business was making money, I was like, no, 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 I want to keep all the money. I'm going to do it all myself. And I realized like, what, what the hell is wrong with me? Like, I am not, I'm not organized. I'm not a project person. I'm not a task person. I'm not good at that stuff. Why the hell am I doing it? And so I brought people in to help me manage my calendar, to help me with editing, to help me uh, with building relationships, you know, following up with people, help me with reaching out, trying to do marketing or PR, help me with content so that I can focus on the things that I'm genuinely good at, which is, you know, the speaking, the creating content, the writing books, the doing stuff like this that I genuinely enjoy. So absolutely, if you are not good at something, you should not be put in a position to do it. But then again, you should probably also rethink if you should be in a leadership role because inherent with being a leader of any kind means that as a leader, you are going to have to help make other people more successful than you. You're going to have to coach them. You're going to have to advise them, mentor them. You're going to have to be a great communicator. So the big challenge for a lot of companies out there is they never take a, a step back to actually consider what makes a good leader at our company. What are the skills and what are the mindsets that they should possess to match that definition of leadership? Typically what we do, we take people who bring in the most amount of money, people who've been at the company the longest, people who are good at uh, navigating office politics and bureaucracy. And we say, oh, you know what? We should promote this person and give them a team of 10 people to manage. Well, guess what? If that person doesn't have the skills and mindsets that I talk about in the book, they might be a great individual contributor, but they should not be in a position where they are leading others. I know many, many stories of people that I talk to who have turned down leadership roles because they, they know they're not going to be good at it. They don't want to manage people. They're good at their jobs, but they're not good at managing other people. It's a completely different skill set. It's a completely different mindset. And we need to be more aware of who we're putting in those roles. Yeah, well said. Let's go to futurists for a sec. What are the skills to become? What is your definition of futurist and the skills to become that? The futurist is really about not predicting the future, but trying to think in terms of scenarios and possibilities. So going back to the chess analogy, and you can see there's a there's a chessboard behind me over there. Love it. The the chess analogy is. You know, when you look at a chess, when you, what separates really great chess players from more amateur chess players is the, the higher rated chess players are good at thinking in terms of possibilities and scenarios. They see the big picture of the board. They can move the pieces in their head. Whereas an amateur player typically moves one piece. They will assume if I move my pawn, my opponent's going to move their bishop and then I'm going to move my knight. And then what happens is when your opponent does something else, you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I thought they were going to move their bishop. Like, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing now. So the skill of the futurist is about how do you think in terms of these scenarios and possibilities so that when something happens, you're not so surprised by it. You kind of thought that that might be a possibility, that that might be a scenario. So that's really what the skill of the futurist is. And, it, just, um, and Jacob, sorry, let me poke at that for a sec, because I think yeah, yeah. of my brain playing chess and you just described me, unfortunately, and I'm, 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 I'm mad at you for that. Uh, but, you know... Because with me, look, I'm, I'm the ADHD entrepreneur, so it's it's so counterintuitive to stop and slow down. 
how do we build the skill? Is that like sit in front of a whiteboard, you know, really figure this out? Like what are the skills to, to go down those paths? So or the process is a process. Yes, yes, there is a process. So um, there are a couple of things. So in the book, I give a framework called the cone of possibilities that people can think of. And it's, uh, if anybody wants to Google it, they can, they can do that. But they're the kind of the easiest ways to think in terms of four questions that you should be asking yourself on a regular basis. And these are questions that you can ask whenever you're looking to make a strategic decision, whenever you're looking to make an investment. And the way that you can start to think in terms of scenarios and possibilities is first you ask, um, why might this happen? So this is a scenario. So why might millions of jobs get, or millions of people get replaced by technology, right? That's one scenario. Uh, second question you ask, what else might happen? Well, if millions of people don't get replaced by technology, what's another scenario that might happen? Well, maybe a lot of the mundane jobs get taken over by technology, but we create a lot of new jobs focused on creativity and the human aspect of work. Uh, third question that you wanna ask is what do you want to happen? So as a leader in your company, what is the future that you want to build? Oftentimes, leaders assume that the future happens to them and they take themselves out of the equation to be some sort of a passive observer. But the reality is that as a leader, you have the accountability and the responsibility to think of what that better future is going to be like and try to design it and build it. And the fourth question to try to ask is, what are the factors that would influence why a certain scenario will or will not happen? So again, looking at the case of jobs and automation, uh, why might millions of people get replaced by technology? So what are the factors that would cause that to happen? In other words, if we wanted that to happen, what would we need to do to ensure that to happen? Well, first, we would have to see a lot of technological progress. Second, individuals would have to not do anything, just sit on their hands and just let technology take their jobs. Don't learn new skills. Don't learn uh, anything new. Just kind of watch. Third, Probably a lot of executives would have to say, eh, you know, humans kind of suck. Let's bring in the bots. Um, fourth, government would have to say, eh, you know, we're not going to step in. Technology, let it do whatever it wants. Like, if all those things happen, then sure, maybe lots of people will be out of work because technology takes those jobs over. So again, you can kind of see the framework, right? So you just ask these four questions on a regular basis. The thing is, we do a pretty good job of this in our personal lives. I mean, if you think, for example, when you started your business or, you know, when everybody goes out on a first date with somebody, you're always thinking of these questions. Well, you know, what's this person going to be like in a couple of years? Can I have kids with this person? What are my parents going to think? If you buy a house in a new area, you're always thinking, what are the schools going to be like? Is the property value going to go up or down? How long can I see myself there? You always think of these scenarios and possibilities, but when you show up to work, all of this gets just zapped out of your head. Because busy, 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 task project, keep your head down, don't ask questions, don't challenge anything, just shut up and do your job. And so we basically teach our employees to suppress this aspect of work when instead we should be encouraging it. Mm. Yeah, well said. I, I love that. And you're right. It's it's so weird. You know, I was um our last podcast guest, we were talking about, you know, learning in the flow and that the corporate learning is okay, Jacob, we're gonna take you outside of what you're doing today. You're super focused and we're gonna, you know, spew a whole bunch of learning that has nothing to do with what you're doing in the moment. Uh, you know, versus when you were at home and we're trying to figure out how to put up a set of blinds and we're in the we're in the zone, we're trying to put them up. You go on YouTube, you figure it out, you don't forget, you can do it again. You're in the zone, you're in the flow. And it's so counter too. We don't do this at, at work. Don't, no one stops and says, I can't figure this out. I should Google it, post it on social media, 
you know, you're, you're so right. The mindset from our personal lives to our work lives. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I, I want to cover technology teenager, uh, the skills on that. Is is it just to keep up with technology and not fall behind? Tell us more. Yeah, pretty much. It's this idea that every company today is a technology company, which means every leader needs to be a technology driven leader. And so oftentimes when there are issues with technology, we always say, go to the IT department. That's not good enough for leaders today. Now, I'm not saying you need to learn how to code, how to build your own blockchain, how to you know, design your own form of artificial intelligence, but you need to know what these things are, what the impact uh, of these technologies is going to be, uh, you know, what role they might play in your industry, your career for your people, what the opportunities are. So that's what being the technology teenager is all about. Because whenever we have problems with technology, we always turn to our kids. And it's not because the kids design these technologies, but they're not scared to fail. They play around with it. They tinker. And that same mentality, that same skill we need to have as leaders. So, but go down one level to skill. I'm just thinking that from, you know, I know that we use four or five different technologies. Is the skill to just lean in and, and really spend some time learning it? What is the skill or the behavior or the habit or yep, the process? Exactly. No, no, that's exactly the skill. It's when you see a technology is you don't run from it, you run towards it right. and you learn about it. And so if you see about, if you hear about something like blockchain, the skill there is I'm not going to like send this to my IT department. The skill is I'm going to learn about what this is. I'm going to Google blockchain. I'm going to watch a TED talk about this. Maybe I'm going to listen to a podcast about this and absorb the information and learn what this technology is and then tinker around with it and be okay with failing. Or if I don't understand something, be okay with digging deeper into it. But yeah, that is the skill is to turn towards it and not toward, not away from it. Got it. We, we've talked about Yoda. Go to translator. I was really curious about that. The translator is listening and communication. So these are things that have been around for many, many years, but also things that have changed more than ever. Because if you think about how we listen and communicate, just the number of tools and platforms and channels has increased so much that it's actually become very hard as a leader to get your message across all these different platforms. And the listening piece is it's very, very hard to listen to people now. We constantly have our phones, technology. How many times have you been in a, in a meeting and somebody's just staring at their phone or their computer and not even making eye contact with you? Uh, I mean, I actually had a, a, a family member when she was let go from a company that she was working at. The lady who was doing her exit interview was actually on a conference call running a meeting while she was asking this person to sign the paperwork on her last day of work. I mean, what kind of an experience is that? That's insane to me. Uh, there's a quote that says, there's no greater form of love and respect that you can show somebody than by listening to them. And that means putting away your technology, um, focusing on your body language, asking follow-up questions. Hearing is the unconscious act of letting sound enter your ear, but listening is about the conscious, purposeful act of letting somebody know that you are there and that you understand what they are saying and you make the conversation feel collaborative. Believe it or not, this is a very, very hard thing to do, especially for leaders who are being pulled in so many different directions. Well, it's funny. This came up on one of our last podcasts too, this, this topic of listening. And our guest said that it is the most taken for granted, untrained, but most impactful thing that corporations aren't doing today. You know, all those little things that you talked about, you know, there's no, we don't train people that we train them on how to get from A to B and do, the, you know, not the soft skill, if you want to call it soft, of listening, the process of listening. It's not trained. It's not part of any training program. It's probably one of the most impactful skills that we should be teaching. 
What do you, would you agree, disagree? Oh yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, but it's interesting because I think as kids, we're probably better listeners. I mean, I have a four-year-old as, as you know, as you do. And you know, of course she can act out a little bit here and there, but by and large, if I have a serious tone with her and I like say, I'm gonna take something away, like I can get her to listen to me. And I think that when we don't have this technology that's constantly in front of us, uh, we're not constantly pulled in a lot of directions, we can be better listeners. And I think kids are better listeners. And then when we grow up, we introduce these different distractions. We introduce the busy work. We introduce constantly having to hustle. We introduce so many different components that it becomes harder and harder to listen. And we kind of teach this out of ourselves. But by and large, I think kids are much better listeners than adults are, believe it or not. Yeah, I would agree. Um, is there anything else that we didn't discuss as we wrap that you thought, look, there's just one message I want to hit home. One thing we didn't discuss that you'd like the audience to hear. Yes. And that is that uh, I mentioned I surveyed nearly 14,000 employees around the world. And one of the most shocking findings from the research was that around the, around the world, leaders think they're doing a decent job of these skills and mindsets that we talked about. Not great, but decent. The people who work for these leaders say their leaders are doing a terrible job. And we're talking about like a 30 plus percent gap. So the, the point of all of this is to say that perception is reality. And as a leader, you might be hearing these skills and mindsets that we're talking about saying, oh yeah, 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 I'm good at being the technology teenager. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm really good at thinking about technology and humanity. I don't care what you think. I don't care if you think you're the best leader in the world. What matters is how the people around you perceive you. Because as we saw with this research, um, leaders think they are doing far better than they really are. The other thing is that the more senior you become in your organization, the bigger the gap becomes, meaning the more disconnected you are from your company. So I think this is very, very important in a crucial time for leaders around the world to build these better relationships, um, to not just focus on these things themselves, but to have these open and honest conversations with those around them to make sure that everybody's working on these things. Uh, and the last, I think, important thing, and this is the cover of the book, it's uh, a cover of a lighthouse, an image of a lighthouse. And it's just a visual that I want people to have of themselves as leaders. And you have to remember that as a leader, your job is to be the lighthouse meaning you want to build yourself up, you know, so you can have this really big bright light, you can shine onto others and onto the you know, sea of uncertainty that we're all a part of. But you also need to remember that as a lighthouse, if there are no ships in the water, then you're useless. So you have to not just focus on yourself, but guide the ships in the water because ultimately that's what your job is, that's your purpose, your responsibility and your privilege, it's to be that lighthouse. Mm. I love that. I want to go back to your, your first point before we wrap on really this, this notion of, of blind spot. Don't believe your own BS, right? You know, yep. I, um, I had a company for 15 years sold it. And only then was the first time I actually get my own business coach. Um, uh, a wonderful uh, individual, Mara from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And when we started, we, we, we started with this process of, okay, Ron, you know, where do you think your blind spots are? Where do you think that, you know, your challenges are? And then we went out to peers, actually my wife, um, employees, staff members and said, look, you know, it was basically a start, stop, continue. What should Ron start to do? What should he stop? doing and what should you continue to do? And then we, we check it and balance that. Does the book talk about a process to get there? Is there a starting point to say, you know, to, to, so I can myth bust my own beliefs? Oh yeah. So there, um, so in the book, there's actually a link to an assessment that people can take. Uh, and what I always encourage people to do 
is to not just take the assessment on their behalf, but to encourage uh, their peers to take this assessment on their behalf. And so if anybody's interested in that, they can go to, uh, I think it's futureleadersurvey.com. Let me just check to make sure. Yeah, futureleadersurvey.com. And it'll ask you a series of questions about these skills and mindsets. Um, so that I think is a great place to start and to have, you know, start by having these open and honest conversations with your peers about what these skills are and what these mindsets are. And perhaps the best action item after you take the assessment is what I call the 1% a day challenge. And what I encourage leaders to do is to think of what they can do to improve by 1% a day. And by the end of the year, you'll be 37 times better if you do that. And 1% a day means making small, gradual changes that over time lead to dramatic, big results. So what does 1% a day mean? It means maybe you commit, and these are like actual examples that executives and leaders have told me that they've done. One person said they're 1% a day. And I would say, okay, starting today, what is the 1% you're doing now? And every day they would do you know, a small thing. So somebody said, okay, starting now, I'm gonna drink one liter of water a day and I'm gonna do walking meetings, right? Practicing self-care, knowing that if you don't take care of yourself physically, it becomes very hard for you to keep up with those around you and to be you know, energized during the day when you have to be on for your people. Somebody else said, I'm gonna go up to one person every day inside my company and tell them thank you for the work that you're doing. Somebody else said, I'm gonna take 10 to 15 minutes a day and listen to a podcast about a new topic. So you can, I mean, these are little things. Somebody else said, um, next time somebody comes to me with a stressful situation before responding right away, I'm gonna take a deep breath. I'm gonna to count to 10. I'm gonna imagine a time when I was in a similar situation and then I'm gonna respond as a way to practice empathy. Mm -hmm. So again, these are little small things that you can do. And you just need to do one of these things every day. And if you keep doing them, then you'll notice by the end of the year, you're going to be 37 times better. So I think that is a fantastic thing for people to focus on as well. I love that. And Jacob, uh, where can we find you? You're doing lots of talking and obviously you've got the four books. Where, where can people listening find you? So there are a couple of places if I'm allowed to uh, mention my, my website, which is where people can get in touch with me and, and get my email and all that sort of stuff is uh, thefutureorganization.com. Um, my email is jacob at thefutureorganization if anyone wants to reach out to me. Uh, we mentioned the assessment. The other thing that people um, listening to, to might be interested in, if you want to download a PDF that has all these skills and mindsets and quotes from some of the CEOs I interviewed, uh, you can go to theleadershipdigest.com and you'll be able to grab the, um, the PDF there. But aside from that, I'm on all the usual social channels, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, super easy to get a hold of, uh, but all the links are on my website. Great. Uh, well, look, it's been fabulous having you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've got three pages of notes. Uh, so, J uh, Jacob, look, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for your counsel. Thanks for what you do for everybody. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more information about Jacob or anything else related to scale and culture, please visit the show description. And if you're enjoying the scale and culture podcast, please subscribe. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.